Bibles, and I invite you to turn with me tonight to Job chapter 2. Book of Job chapter 2, as we continue looking this evening at the book of Job. Our author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and flesh and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard all of this adversity, that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky, Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Now, if you were with us back at the beginning of the month when we looked to the opening chapter of the book of Job, you might notice that there are many similarities between the two chapters. If you uh, noticed the things there in Job chapter 1, you will notice very many things that are the same here. Back in chapter 1, we we saw the character of Job, both the fact that the author of the book and God himself referred to Job with that fourfold uh, description, that he was blameless, that he was upright, that he feared God and turned away from evil. We saw in chapter 1 how Satan accused Job, how he falsely accused Job and said that if the Lord took away Job's possessions, then he would curse God to his face. And we saw the permission of God, how all of those calamities that came upon Job in Job chapter 1 came under the sovereignty of God and by the righteous permission of God. And we saw the godly response of Job, how Job did not curse God and die. Rather, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
he still worshipped God. And we see these same elements largely functioning here in chapter 2. And I suppose that uh, I might be able to preach roughly the same sermon that I did at the beginning of the month, making the appropriate changes for the difference between the two chapters. But just to give you all some relief, I am not going to do that. Uh, But it is worth noting that chapter 2 does show to us a subsequent set of events that replay many of the things that we saw going on in chapter 1. With that said, though, we need to observe that this is the second round of trial for Job. And in the second round of trial, the ante is upped. The stakes are raised. The temperature is heated up even higher, and the trial hits even closer to home. And so let's notice a few elements of this heightened trial here in chapter 2. First, uh, let's observe, once again, the Lord's approval of Job. Secondly, let's observe the trial of health. Thirdly, let's look at Job's wife. And then fourthly, let's look at Job's friends. So we've got the Lord's approval, the trial of health, Job's wife, Job's friends. So first of all, the Lord's approval of Job. Certainly we saw this in chapter 1, but there is an additional note for us here to consider in chapter 2. After the Lord gives that same fourfold description of Job in verse 3 that we saw a couple of times back in chapter 1, where he says that there's no one like him on earth, that he is one, blameless, two, upright, and three, fearing God, four, turning away from evil. There's that fourfold description. Then... The Lord points out to Satan how well Job had handled his first trial. There's something, there's something to be added here. This was not present in chapter 1. He says, And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. After the first round of testing, Job had come through with flying colors. The Lord approved of Job's character as he had before. Although now the Lord bore witness to Job's faithfulness under trial. He says he still holds fast his integrity. Job had refused to blame God. He had refused to speak of the Lord in an unseemly and ungodly manner on account of the trial. He was upright before the trial. He was upright in the trial, upright after the trial. He, he came through round one with flying colors. He remained godly. Satan had attacked his his character, right? That was what Satan was after in in chapter 1. You take these things away from Job and he'll curse you to your face. He's just serving you for the benefits. Round 1 showed that Satan was wrong. And the the Lord says here to Satan, more or less, you were wrong. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me to ruin him without cause. Satan had stirred the pot and the Lord had permitted it But at the end of the day, it was shown that Satan had done this for nothing because Job had retained his integrity. Satan was thus found to be a false accuser. The Apostle James says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised those who love him. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. James 1.12 Such a man was Job. He persevered under trial. May God grant the same thing to you and I. Now let's observe here, secondly, Job's trial of health. After the Lord praises Job's conduct during during round one, Satan replies there in verses four and five, 
and he says, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Satan's response here demonstrates his shameless boldness. To characterize, and, or to paraphrase one, one writer's take on it, Satan is shameless in his boldness in his attack on Job, even though the grace of God had clearly shown itself in Job's heart and life, In round one of the trial, Satan still denied the reality of grace in Job's heart. He still denied that Job had the grace of God. He he says, yeah, 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 whatever. Job can still praise you now because he's still got his health. He's not hurting that bad. You make him hurt a little bit, and it's over. That expression there, skin for skin is uh, a bit difficult to understand exactly what's, what's going on there. It may perhaps bear the meaning that, uh, that James Durham gave in his lectures on the book of Job. And uh, James Durham said, A man will bear other burdens better as long as his skin is kept in good health, intimating the more personal that afflictions are, the trial is sharper and the worse to be borne. And what Durham is, is getting at Uh, by that explanation of that phrase, skin for skin, is that if our health is intact, we might be able to handle the stress and the strain of other kinds of losses, other kinds of trials, other kinds of pressures, those kinds of losses and trials and pressures that Job sustained in chapter 1. But if one's health is gone, the house of cards might be more quick to tumble to the ground. In Satan's reasoning, Job's health, as it were, would be the one Jenga block that he could pull out, and the whole tower of Job's integrity and godliness would fall. At the risk of sounding trite, the logic of Satan was similar to that of Count Rugen and the Princess Bride, when he said to Humperdinck, if you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. That's, that seems to be what, what Satan is getting at here. You, you touch him personally at that personal level of his health, pull out that jingle block, it's all done. Of course, you do your face. And we see here Satan's wicked and relentless pursuit of God's people. That he hates them, that he accuses them, that he lies about them, that he seeks opportunities to make them fall. And this general bent of Satan has not changed. It still endures to this day. Peter warns us, as we saw in our opening reading from 1 Peter 5, he says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Was that not what Satan was doing here? Seeking someone to devour. Likewise, Revelation 12, 17, we're told of how Satan went off to make war with those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, the malice of Satan is real. It's not only something that was historical. It happened here in the book of Job. It happened in the Bible times or at other points in history. This is, this is real and it endures to this very day. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, 
stand firm. The evil day may soon be coming our way as well. We need to be ready for it. In general, we could say the times are evil because evil people are at work in them because the enemy Satan is alive and active and at work. But sometimes we have particular evil days that come upon us. And we see in Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, a couple of particular evil days that came upon him. And we need to be, to be ready for it, to put on the full armor of God, to be sober in spirit, to be on the alert because our adversary is seeking whom he may devour. And, as we see in the text, Satan did hear as the Lord allowed him to do. He afflicted the health of Job. He brought the sore boils upon his skin, literally from head to toe. And Job goes out to sit on the ash pile like the social outcast that he has now become. And to underline the, the pathetic nature of the situation, he needs something to, to scrape himself, to scratch himself. And so he gets a, a broken piece of pottery to do this. And there he sits, bearing the mental pain of all that had happened to him in round one, in chapter one, bearing the physical pain of all that had happened to him in round two. That's quite a change from the picture of Job that we saw at the beginning of the book. Just a little while ago, this man was the greatest man of the East. Ten children, this great wealth in all of his, his livestock, had servants, but not anymore. It had all come crumbling to the ground. The English philosopher Isaac Taylor put it well when he said that nothing is permanent belonging to man but his inconstancy. The weeks of one summer, the brief interval between the springing of the blade and the putting in of the sickle on our fields, may see pass away as a forgotten dream what we had believed to stand as firm as a mountain. Job may have thought that there was no moving him. We don't, we don't know what was in his, in his heart in terms of whether he was relying unduly on his earthly wealth, we, we assume that he was not, given his godly character. But nevertheless, don't we all have a tendency to think that you know, we, we have our possessions, we have our families, and we'll be fine. It doesn't take long in a world like this for it all to come crashing down. Such was the case with Job. Now, most everything of value had been taken from Job, Two things accepting. One, his wife. Two, his godliness. And now, his wife seeks, as it were, to take away his godliness. We see her words there in verse 9. And this is our third point as we consider Job's wife. She says in verse 9, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And what is, what is she doing here? And seeing all that has come upon her husband, she now urges him to do the very thing that Satan was attempting to bring about. This was, this was Satan's end game, right? Get Job to curse God. And now his wife is telling him to do that very thing. That was Satan's claim all along, was that if God just altered Job's situation significantly enough and removed his hands so that the blessings would go away, removed his hands so that his health could be attacked, if the right circumstances could be engineered, that Job would curse God to his face. His charge all along was that Job really wasn't upright and godly, he just appeared to be. And now Job's wife joined in to urge him to curse God and die. Her line of reasoning probably was 
such that she thought that all of Job's piety and faithfulness had not panned out well. And therefore she just urges him, why not just give it up as worthless? Why not just renounce your piety, curse the God who has brought this massive suffering into your life, and give up this earthly life? This is the question that she is posing. This is the temptation that she is placing before her husband. And in in thinking about Job's wife, we do well to remember that Job's wife is not an unaffected spectator, right? This is is not the friend who who zooms in from half a world away and parachutes in and says, oh, wow, this is really bad. Yeah, curse God and die. This is bad. We We need to remember that she herself had suffered. It's true, she hadn't suffered everything that Job had. The attack on Job's body, he had borne alone. The loss of wealth and prestige would have probably been most keenly felt by Job, but she would have certainly felt it too. She certainly would have felt the loss of her children. She would have felt that very keenly. And so she's not unaffected in all of this. We might say that the principal shots were fired at Job, but she certainly felt the fallout from the blasts. This was her husband. This was her covenant marriage partner, the head of her household, suffering like this, and she had suffered plenty in all of it as well. And so now she says, Job, just throw in the towel. You tried being godly. We had a good life for a while. It didn't work out. I'm sorry. Just give it up. Curse God and die. The poet, uh, Sir Richard Blackmore, paraphrased her question to Job in verse by saying, Dost thou not see that thy devotion's vain? What have thy prayers procured but woe and pain? Hast thou not yet thy interest understood, perversely righteous and absurdly good, those painful swords and all those losses show how heaven regards the foolish saint below, incorrigibly pious, can't thy God reform thy stupid virtue with his rod? And what does Job say? Is he ready to throw in the towel and give it up? Not at all. He calls her out and he says that she speaks like one of the foolish women. He didn't say explicitly that she was a foolish woman herself. He said that she spoke like one of them. Now, Job's wife gets a lot of bad press, understandably so, for she told him to do a very wicked thing. And in this case, uh, she was, in effect, an instrument of Satan. Her design coincided with his. But despite the wicked thing that she encouraged her husband to do, If I may borrow the words of John Gill, she, quote, might be a good woman for anything that appears to the contrary. And Job himself seems to intimate the same. Though she was in the dark about this providence and under a sore temptation on that account. Now we know that once this trial was was over, that Job had ten more children. And we never read of Job's wife dying, nor of him marrying another woman, and it seems to conclude that she likely lived on with her husband. They had another family in the end. And she may, in fact, have been a far better woman in general than this one soundbite would suggest. We only hear her words when her husband is at his lowest and very likely when she's at her lowest as well. Before we conclude that his wife was an ungodly and reprobate woman, we would do well to consider whether we would want to be judged for all of history by the words that we ourselves have spoken in our darkest hour. This was, this was her darkest hour, and this 
is the quote that we have from her. Now, we don't know. Maybe she was a godly woman on the whole. Certainly, godliness is not shown to us in the text. But, again, would you want to be judged by your words that come out of your mouth at your lowest hour, particularly if your lowest hour was something like hers? Now, Job, as we know, refused to give in to this ungodly suggestion. And again, as we saw back in chapter 1, verse 21, Job ultimately sees the Lord as the one who is sovereign over the loss. Earlier, he had said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And now he says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Job understands that God is sovereign over all things and that even if adversity comes, it ultimately comes to us by the righteous permission of God. Now, one of the things that we see here in this exchange between Job and his wife is an anecdotal sample of the way in which people can conceivably handle catastrophe. Job's wife had lost her cool, to put it mildly. She had suffered, and she had, lost, uh, she had watched her husband suffer even more. And for the life of her, she couldn't understand why Job maintained his piety and faith in the Lord. And we see the difference between their words in the text. His wife speaks like a foolish woman, Job says, while the author comments on Job there at the end of verse 10 and says, In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so friends, let's, let's take a lesson from verses 9 and 10. That we must not be rash with our words, whether we ourselves are the ones who are suffering or whether we are the ones who are offering counsel to the suffering. Let's take heed here that we ought to comfort and console those who are broken and that we do so in such a way that we do not lead them into temptation or put stumbling blocks before them. Let's take heed that we do not function when we should be Agents of God's grace, let's make sure we don't function as emissaries of the devil, suggesting to those who are in pain to do the very thing that Satan desires to accomplish in the life of those who suffer. And let's learn from the example of Job that we keep ourselves in hand when disaster strikes and when pain comes. Let's learn to receive pain humbly from the hands of God. Let's learn to resign ourselves to his care, knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ has suffered immeasurably more than we ever will. And through it all, as we find in 1 Peter 2.23, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That was, that was what Christ did, is he kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly, righteously. And in this, Christ set an example for us. That's what, that's what Peter says in that same context in 1 Peter 2, that Christ set an example for us that we might follow in his steps. Christ continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We must do the same. And so may God give us all grace that we would hold our tongues and not sin with them in the moment of adversity and at the same time continue entrusting ourselves to God knowing that he will bring everything out right at last, in his own good time. And finally, in this chapter, we see Job's friends. Obviously, we see that, we'll see throughout the course of the book that these friends had their issues, that they were wrong in what they would later say to Job. 
We find at the end of the book that the Lord's wrath was kindled against them, that they did not speak what was right of the Lord as Job had. We know these friends were sinful. But let me just ask you, which one of you does not have sinful friends? If you don't have sinful friends, I would venture to say you don't have any friends. I recently looked up an old friend of mine from 20 years ago, a friend that I've not seen for probably at least 18 years ago, if not more, and had no real contact with him during the intervening time. And I was saddened to see that my old friend had been in trouble with the law and he was doing things he shouldn't have been doing. Sinful friends are a reality in this world if we're going to have any friends at all. And despite what they say later on throughout the course of the conversations in the book, these friends show themselves in admirable form here in chapter 2. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar hear this sad news about Job. Word had gotten around somehow, and they make an appointment. This was something intentional. It says that they made an appointment to come together to sympathize with Job and to comfort him. Their intentions were good, and here in chapter 2, they actually did good. What they did was good and wholesome. They showed up with a good purpose, and when they did not recognized Job, they raised their voices, they wept, they tore their clothes and threw dust on their heads toward the sky, and they sat in silence with him for seven days because they saw that his pain was great. So far, so good for these friends. And this is a lesson for us, that sometimes those who are broken and hurting just need someone to be with them. And sometimes silence is best. Certainly, Sometimes people just want to be left alone, and there's a, there's a time and a place to give hurting people some space. And sometimes we do need to speak, no doubt about that as well. But sometimes the way to minister to someone when the bottom has fallen out of their world is to make a plan, to show up, and be willing to weep with the ones who are weeping, and to be willing to be quiet, just to be there with them. Even... Our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to weep with those who wept when he was at the tomb of Lazarus. And I'm sure that when Jesus wept, he wasn't simply weeping to be kind to those who were mourning. He was actually in distress himself about his friend. And our Lord Jesus counts it among the deeds of those who will be on his right hand was that he was sick and his people visited him. James tells us that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The world is full of hurting people. And sometimes we ourselves will be the ones who are hurt. So let's take a lesson here from Job chapter 2 so as to be prepared for the evil day by putting on the armor of God, being on our guard and alert against the schemes of Satan, as we've seen, by having hearts that are ready to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, and having feet that are ready to go and minister to those who have lost what was very dear to them, perhaps most or almost everything that was dear to him. Let's have feet that are ready to go and minister to them, sympathize with them in kindness and love. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have in Christ a a perfect example of holiness and godliness under, under trial, that he shows us how to 
keep entrusting ourselves to you who judge righteously. And Lord, we, we ask that when the evil day comes upon us, we would do the same. That we would trust you, even when we don't understand. Even when it hurts so very bad. Lord, we ask that you would help us. That we would have hearts that are tender toward others who suffer. That we'd be willing to care for them and to love them and to minister to them. We pray that you give us wisdom as to how we can best do so. We thank you for your word. We pray that you'd strengthen us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.